Welcome to the Retirement Plan Playbook, hosted by Brent Pasqua, Matthew Thiel, and Joshua Winterswick of Evermont Wealth. This podcast dives deep into investment strategies, retirement planning, and current events, equipping you with the insights needed to craft a robust retirement playbook adaptable to any political or economic climate. Join Brent, Matthew, and Joshua as they guide you through the complexities of retirement planning, offering expert advice to tackle challenges in the later stages of your journey. It's time to build your optimal retirement playbook. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome to the Retirement Plan Playbook. I'm Brent Pasqua, host and founder of Evermont Wealth. I'm here with Matthew Thiel, CFP, and Joshua Winterswike, CFP. Hey, Matt, what do we have in store on the show today? Hey, Brent, I'm super excited for today's show. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite rules, the 4% withdrawal rate. I think this is going to be a great show today. What, do you th- what are your thoughts, Josh, on the, the show? Yeah, I, lo- I love this rule. I don't know if it's my favorite, like Matt's, but I'm uh, excited to talk about it today. You know, I've been waiting to talk about this for a long time. I think we've had this kind of queued up as one of the topics that we're going to go over. And it is something that's such a widely big conversation that we have with so many clients that I think it is, I think it's a good time for us to have it. It's the beginning of the year. People think about their transition to retirement and their withdrawals during the year. I think this is a good time for it. Also, for anyone that's, you know, uncertain about retirement and how they're going to get income, it's a perfect place to start. As we get started, I mean, what's your thoughts on the Super Bowl? Oh, I'm super excited. What are you excited about, the Super Bowl or who's playing? (laughs) Well, so I used to be a 49er fan. I was a big Niner fan. So I always think it's funny, and all my friends are Niner fans, like, you know, five or six of them. They all love the Niners. But I, I think it's cool. Like Patrick Mahomes is really good. He's the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, for, for those of you who don't know. And I think greatness is special. And it's pretty cool to watch him just lead a team with like pretty much nobody on it. Like Travis Kelsey, like he should probably be in a retirement home. The tight end Taylor for the Chiefs. Swift's on the team. Yeah, who's dating Taylor Swift. And then it's just a bunch of, you know, late round draft picks that he's making good. Uh, that's pretty cool. So 49ers and Chiefs, who do you got, Brent? I want neither of them to win. That's how <laughs> I, mean, I feel. I would have done, I would have felt better with either of the other two teams playing in the Super Bowl. Um, but now we have this. So I'm not interested. You know, it's another two weeks of having to listen to about Kelsey and Taylor Swift and all this stuff, which I mean, great for them. But I just, does everyone need to hear about it for two weeks? I like their story. It's great. It's I like, like that too. Like the, the common football guy won, you know, right. he's like winning. Just, this just leads into the hands of all the people that say that the NFL is rigged, though, because the Chiefs are back 100%. in the Super Bowl with, like, America's new couple. What's crazy, though, is so I guess, and yeah, obviously the NFL rigged it to get the Chiefs in the, in the <laughs> Super Bowl. There were some questionable calls in the game the other day. But I guess she actually has a concert in Japan. Like the day before or something, huh? Yeah, so they're going to have to fly her, on, get her on, like, the fastest jet possible to make the game in time. See, and the thing too for me is like I'm watching the game yesterday and my wife's rooting for the Chiefs and then my son's rooting for the Chiefs. I'm like, why? Why are you rooting for them? Oh, no wonder you're angry. Yeah, I'm just like, why? Why are we rooting for the Chiefs? I think though for kids though, again, you know, Mahomes is that new Brady. He's that new greatness. So the kids gravitate to whoever's the best. And I think it's pretty clear now though, if you weren't already certain, Patrick Mahomes is, you know, the best quarterback in this in the NFL. I agree. 
He's so good. Hot take headlines? Yeah. Why don't you tell us what we have? All right. So our first headline, we're going to talk about the Apple Vision Pro. It comes out this Friday. Been some mixed reports on it from a pre-order perspective. They've sold up to 180,000 so far. What are your guys' thoughts on this Apple Vision Pro? And for those that don't know what that is, it's the new virtual reality headset from Apple. You put it on, it looks like ski goggles. I'm out. It's too expensive for me. You guys can go ahead. Oh, yeah, it's expensive. <laughs> Tell people what it does, though. I don't know what it does. It's like you put it on and it's like a computer in your eyes, right? Yeah, it's like you're working on your computer. You're working on your phone inside of your goggle set and you're seeing it all around you versus you in your normal setting where you're able to see this. Like you're building your setting where you're doing this work. But you could also watch TV on it and watch movies. The the video they showed of it looked really cool. But like I would I question like, you know, you put it on, are are you really gonna like it or is it gonna feel like kind of weird? And then like you have to move your hands all around to get it to do things. I don't know. You're now, when you have something like that on, you're now immersed inside of the situation that you're in, whether it's the apps that you're working on or the computer system that you're working on, whatever you're doing, you're now immersed in it. So I could see, let's say, for example, you go onto an airplane. You don't want to be immersed with all the people around you. You put your goggle headset on, you put your movie on, and you're not, you're not, distracted by things that are on you you're just in, in your little reality bubble like brent sounds like someone who's maybe tried one of these before and we haven't i have not tried one the only thing i have tried is my son has a meta quest which is the new like virtual reality video game system and it is very very neat it's it's completely different than i would have thought but this is the competitor to apple right correct he has use case to it though but i'm i'm not i'm out right now First generation, seems like there's a lot of bugs, issues, very expensive. But I am also very, very bullish long-term that like this is, you could potentially say it replaces like the iPad, right? You see everyone take iPads on like even the airplane or you go on a trip, you're in the car and now you don't need that anymore. You just put on these goggles and it's doing everything even better than even an iPad or a screen could ever do for you. So I read on my iPad at night and I could just see Haley, my wife, getting so mad at me when I smack her in the face because I have Apple Vision Pro on and I'm trying to like to flip the apps or however you control the thing with my hands. Yeah, I could see that being a problem. You know, you you extend your hand out, whack, yeah, boom, <laughs> right in the face. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I think it does potentially replace the iPad and it could. You know, what the difference in that setting is, is that when you have those goggles on, you're now operating in that system solely. You're not operating on your iPad with people around you. Mm-hmm. When you have the goggles on, like you're just in that reality. Because you don't even need an additional headphones. Correct. So, you know, you're eliminating even headphones and a screen. It's now just on your head. Right. So you have this strap around your head with the goggles on. And I guess the sound comes from, the I don't goggles. know if it's either the strap or the goggles, but supposedly, you don't obviously need even need earpods, AirPods on. You just yeah. need you're hearing it straight from the goggles. So if I'm on the airplane and I'm gonna have to listen to some guy's movie, no, no, I don't think so. I think there's a way that it can go direct, or you put in some sort of air pod or earbud. Yeah, no, you're not. I don't think you're hearing the sound. I think sound now is being built so that you could be sitting probably right next to one person with the same system on, and they're not hearing it either. Have you guys seen the movie Her? Yes. I feel like we're going to be at full her by 2030. 
It's that's, coming. That's, I think this is completely changing computing, though. Yeah. This is going to be a killer product for Apple. Have you seen Minority Report? No, I should watch that, though. A Tom Cruise, a, like, futuristic movie, and he has the screens, and he's, like, moving them around, and that's how they, like, compute. Like, it's happening. It's pretty cool. My my take awesome. on this is is the same as yours, though. This price point is extremely high. I mean, I, I, I don't know how they did so many sales. Like, how can somebody afford something like this? It's very expensive. And number two, like the first version is generally not the best version. So price comes down, make improvements, work out the kinks. Then I could see myself getting one. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be here for a long time. And let's first see these other people use it. But I don't know. I'm jumping out to go bu- spend $3,500 on some goggles. Yeah, yeah, that's a big price tag. Matt, what's the other headline? All right. Did you guys hear that Netflix jumped into live sports after saying they would never do it? And they agreed to pay $5 billion for the rights to WWE's Raw. Any takes? You still like wrestling? I haven't watched wrestling in 20 years, but I think it's pretty cool. Like seventh and eighth grade was probably the peak of me watching wrestling. Stone Cold, The Rock. Yeah, that was it. (laughs) That, That was cool, right? Yeah, I think this if, is a good move. If you look in the stands of WWE events, there's it's all middle-aged men and right. middle-aged people. They still like it. They still like it. Don't kids like it? Oh, they love it. Is your son into it? No. Do you think he's going to get into it? Maybe. I I feel like my son's nine, so I don't, I don't think at that age I was into it, but I don't remember. It was just a very short span when I was young. I remember I used to come over to your parents' house and we'd watch it with your brothers. I think the thing that the thing that strikes me about this deal, though, is that the big companies always seem to find a way, at least the good ones. And this is another way for Netflix to get ahead of everybody else. But you, you know, there was the who was the one that had the NFL game the other day where they had all those extra peacock, peacock, right? So they're you would consider them a competitor of Netflix, right? Mm-hmm. They had all those subscribers. All those subscribers are most likely going to cancel, or a lot of them will probably cancel. But people are coming to Netflix to stay. Yeah, I I think it's an interesting move and because they've kind of slowly dabbled into sports, right? F1, now they're into golf and then they're adding WWE. So it's kind of like these, not like the mainstream sports that they're, you know, putting onto their platform, which is kind of unique, kind of making it niche for these like groups of people. So I think it's pretty cool. I don't know how it's all going to go down because I know WWE is also going through a bunch of lawsuits because of their former CEO. So I don't know the timing on this is great. But didn't he just step down again? <laughs> yeah, I think so. So I don't know how that's going to all work out, but it seems like their parent company's stock price has done pretty well and it stayed you know, pretty high after the announcement. So, and, and I think to go on your point, Brent, on the NBC comparison, I think it's smart because the WWE re- is recurring. I think it happens at like once a week, right? And it's a live show. So boom, they throw it on. But also you could go back and watch it. It's not quite like you know if you missed that Dolphins Chiefs game you saw the score you're like oh well I missed the game I'm not going to go back and watch it but you know people get really into these wrestling storylines and they'll go back and watch it a couple days later most likely isn't it on Monday it's Monday Night Raw yeah that's what it was when we were kids is it still the same I don't know. I'm going to assume so. They just, it just, on the headline, it just says WWE Raw. I, now that we're talking about this, when it does air, I have to watch at uh, least one. Oh, I'm going to watch the first one for sure. <laughs> but isn't this just another step in the direction of the traditional cable TV is fading out quickly? Yes. Yeah, it's done. I canceled DirecTV this year. It saved $2,000. Wow. That's big. Yeah. That's huge. I'm proud of you. Yeah. Thanks. 
Final thought, I hope they bring The Rock back. That'd be cool. And Stone Cold. Yeah, Stone Cold. Yeah, that'd be cool too. Yeah, Netflix will have to open their, their checkbook for that one. Yeah, I like that. If they bring all the old guys back, I'm definitely watching. All right, Matt, why don't you introduce us to the 4% rule and what do you have for us? All right, so the 4% rule was started by this man named, I'm going to butcher his last name, William Bengen. Mm-hmm. Bengen. And he was a researcher he did in 1994. And what he did is he analyzed historical stock and bond market pricing going from 1926 to 1976, looking at all different market conditions. If you know your history well, this would you would know the dates include the Great Depression. So stock market data sets, the, they start around 1926. That's when people decided, hey, it's probably a good idea to keep data on stock prices. So that's when the best data st- set starts. We use it here at our firm. And he tested a portfolio based on about 50 to 75% stocks. If you're a client of our firm, you know, we usually recommend somewhere between 40 to 60% of your money being stocks. And his whole goal was just to test the withdrawal rate, the time horizon for a 30-year period. So 30 years meaning the course of your retirement. And what he found, his takeaway was, he did all this, did this back test, and found out that 4% is the ideal withdrawal rate for you to spend down your portfolio and not run out of money when you're retired for 30 years. Right. So what the rule suggests is that retirees can withdraw 4% of their retirement portfolio starting in the first year of retirement and then adjusting for subsequent inflation year over year. And with that withdrawal rate, your portfolio should last you 30 years. Mm-hmm. But it's is a, that a perfect rule? Rule. I think it's more of a guideline, a starting guideline of how to turn your retirement portfolio into income at a safe withdrawal percentage. And I think it's just a start. Right. I think that there is some really good benefits to it or some pros to it. Number one, like you're saying, it gives you a really good baseline to say, okay, if you're with retiring with, let's call it a million dollars in your portfolio, and you want to figure out what you should take out that first year, what you can take out, you could establish that 4%. So you're taking out $40,000 a year from your portfolio. And at that rate, at that moment, your money should and could last you based on historical data, 30 years. Mm-hmm. But that also leaves out and puts a lot of questions into you know the scenario of, Based on this, are you, Matt, adjusting each year to a new 4%? So if the market goes down, you have 900000 are you now taking out and adjusting your income? What I found is most people don't do that because nobody wants to adjust their income lower when their portfolio drops. But also at the same time, you can make the argument when a client's portfolio goes up, you usually don't adjust it either. Right. So it's typically a rule you start with right at retirement. The whole catch to this, though, is once the client hits required minimum distribution age or the required beginning date, to use kind of the technical term, usually the amount they're getting from that is larger than the 4% withdrawal rate anyways. Well, that depends on how much they have in pre-taxed assets, though, or post-tax assets. Post-tax, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it may not be based on their total asset value. No, it's not, but it's a, you know, a pretty large amount they're pulling out of their retirement funds. But at the same time with RMDH being pushed back, I mean, a lot of people are wanting to retire earlier, like we talked about on the other one. So, you know, you're in retirement now for 10 years before you even start collecting your RMD. 
I think the big sort of potential con to this, and I love the rule. I love it as a baseline. But the downside to it that I see is when we see a lot of clients retire, they're initially, let's just call it, in their younger to middle 60s, sometimes a little bit older. And they plan on doing a lot of the things that they want to do in that first chapter of their retirement. They may plan to spend more money in the first half of retirement than the second half. We see that all time and time again. In the second half, they're not wanting to travel as much. So they may need 4% for them to take out for their monthly expenses, but that might not account for the trips that they want to take that are going to cost them $30,000 a year additionally. Yeah, I think the biggest question, though, going along that lines is at what percent then is too high where you're putting yourself at risk, right? And if I was the client, I'm like, okay, great. Well, I'm going to spend more than 4%, like you're saying. But what's that magic number? Where is it 9? Is it 10? Is it 15? Well, I don't think you could set it and forget about it. Yeah, good. Well, you're going to run that money. It's a math problem. 100%. If you're taking 20% of your money out per year, you're going to run out of money in four to six years. Right. Depending on market. And that's where, you know, we talk about assumptions, but it lacks multiple variables in someone's life, right? We don't know about longevity or when you're going to pass. And then also like, do you want to even leave any money to your heirs at the end of retirement? So that like kind of changes that calculation too. So you're saying I'm solving for 30 years, but let's say that, you know, I only expect to be here for 20. I don't have good longevity and I don't care about my heirs inheriting any money that withdrawal percentage could be higher for that person compared to somebody else. I think what you can do, and we've done this a lot, is where you establish, hey, here's your 4%, and they know they're going to need more than 4%. You build in that extra travel budget or that extra luxury budget in there for five years. You say, here's what the five-year projection looks like. Let's reassess in five years about how that looks. Although we'll be looking at it year over year, because if you have a down year, you may not be wanting to take that type of withdrawal out. But if you look reassess in five years, they're now 72, 73 years old. You'd say, okay, well, maybe I was traveling X, Y, Z this many times, but I may not want to travel that much now. How often have you had a client come to you during down year and say, hey, I'm not going to take money out because portfolio's down? Never. Yeah, same here. I I will like play a little bit of devil, devil's advocate on there. I think that like maybe not even down market, but like down economy. People are like, I'm going to wait a little longer to take more money out. I've had clients do that. It's yeah, like, I've seen that. You know, I've it's like, that. and yeah. it's not even necessarily, to be honest, it's not like when the portfolio is down, it's more of like when the sediment of like, hey, the market economy, this country, things aren't going well collectively. I'm going to hold off on my house remodel or taking that trip because I just don't feel good about everything that's going on. Yeah, like 2022 or 2023. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Describing those years. I think when I retire, I will probably adjust if I can my income to, I think, what is the appropriate year over year withdrawal rate from my portfolios. But I'm I'm not sure that I would follow exactly just the 4% rule. I think I'd gauge it year by year and based on needs. But I think that's harder for a lot of people because they would have to adjust their lifestyle sometimes. I would be curious too on how the 4% withdrawal rule works over a longer time frame. So would it work for 40 years? Would it work for 50 years? Um, I'm not sure if you tested this or not. Maybe you guys know. Um, but, you know, let's say you're in your early 40s, early 50s. Um, you sell your business. You, know, you get a big chunk of change, 5, 10 million. 
and you withdraw 4% per year. Is your money going to last for 50 years until you're 90? Would it work? I don't know. Well, I mean, if you just take the assumption behind the 4% rule, right, you're going to earn, you know, more than what you're taking out. Right? Yeah, just a general concept. If you're of, like 60% in stock. Right? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to earn 6 or 7% and I'm going to take out 4 Like just generally, you would hope that the portfolio would last forever, right? Yeah, so it's going to work over a longer period of time. Potentially, yes. But again, we don't know where you can't assume for all market assumptions going over those 40 years that you're going to get 6 or 7% on average for 40 years. I mean, uh, historical evidence I've would seen suggest... The I've seen the data. <laughs> ...suggest that, yes, you could, but, I mean, that's a variable that we don't know. But if you look at the 4% rule over the last, let's call it, six, seven years, and you were only taking out 4% of your money, you're, you've seen, at a 60-40 portfolio, you've seen tremendous growth with your withdrawals at that rate. Absolutely. And so... You could go back to historical data and say you've seen the same thing. If you're assuming 4% and you see that you're making 7 or 8%, let's just call it on a 60-40 portfolio, then you're seeing along with that growth, you're taking out this money. You have flexibility to take out more or you have more for the future. You're not running out of money at that rate. You're not spending down. No, you're not. So then are you adjusting? Are you taking out more? I I think that is probably client personality driven, but like when you look at, especially if you look at a client, you know, with a couple million dollars in, in pre-tax retirement funds, can't you make the argument like you saved all this money, like you should go enjoy it. Like don't even worry about the rule. Just go enjoy your retirement. It's pretty hard to spend that amount of funds. I mean, I, I know people who could spend that money. Me? <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's more putting, you know, think of a bowling alley. It's with bumpers or it's guardrails. At least you would have an idea to like stay in the right lane. But I, I, I somewhat agree with you. Like, yes, go enjoy it and spend more. You don't have to live by the 4% rule is what I'm hearing from you. Are you talking about cosmic bowling? <laughs> sure. Is that what it's called? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm just saying, you know, you're putting bumpers on there to keep you in a lane, right? And, and I think that that's what this does more. And it's just a very good entry point into like retirement income planning. It's a used a rule that I use too when people just ask me like how much should I have for retirement or how do I get income in retirement? And I use this rule for anyone I meet, just meet generally that's asking me questions about finance. I think if you stick to the four percent rule, I don't think you're going to probably run out of money if you're on a sixty forty portfolio ever. Like you're gonna live a very you could live a very long time. You take out 4%, leave your 4% the way it is. I think you'll live very comfortably if that amount of money get, makes you comfortable. Your portfolio value is going to be comfortable for you the rest of your retirement. Yeah, as long as you don't panic during bear markets and you, know, you stick to whatever investment philosophy you created. Yeah, it's a very good, simple benchmark. But I, I think the key takeaway, too, that a lot of people forget is when he tested this, he did it between 55 to 70 something percent in stock. Not 20, not 35, not zero. You have to be willing to take the stock and take the lumps for this plan to work. Correct. If you're all in bonds or, or more conservative investment investor, maybe you, know, you have all annuities or something, you're probably not going to keep up with this. Correct. Because you can make the argument that if you had that allocation in your portfolio, 
where you had, let's call it 70% stocks in 2008, you probably didn't want to take out any more if you even took out 4% because it would be hard to sell off that many shares to create that amount of money of a withdrawal. Yeah, because you're probably down like 30% in a way, depending on what funds you're in. The other thing too is I guess if I was a conservative investor, there's nothing wrong with being a conservative investor. But if I was in annuities or bonds and that was my only investment because I didn't want to um, own stock for whatever reason, uh, maybe I couldn't sleep at night or bad experience, what would you guys do for income? I, I, I don't think I'd follow 4%. I think, you know, that's obviously would be a losing proposition. I mean, would you take the, the dividends off your bonds? Like the just whatever the rate it's paying. Interest or dividends yeah. from the bonds and just say, I'm going to live off of what, you know, feeds me yeah, from well, this product. And what, when, how would you even take your annuity, I guess? And the, the challenge with that too is you're not really accounting for inflation. Because uh, yeah. we've, we've seen a lot of inflation over the last few years and cost of living has gone up. And your your bonds generally aren't readjusting for inflation necessarily, depending. So that it, it does make it hard. But if you're probably doing that, and let's say you have a 4% rate on your bonds, you probably need to be taking a little bit less of a withdrawal rate out. In 2022, the inflation rate at the peak was 11%, and bonds were down 15% that year. That's like a 30% loss, right? But that's the sacrifice, because you're saying you want to be more conservative. It wasn't conservative that year. <laughs> <laughs> we're just locking a 30-year bond and live off the 4% interest. Yeah, so I guess maybe that's more what I'm getting on. That's probably what I do. I do a long-term... So this is different than our short-term bond ladder we've been talking about. You could do a long-term bond ladder. Mm -hmm. You do like a 10-year, a 20-year, and a 30-year bond ladder. But then you have to live off of, that's all you have to live off of because you can't withdraw from those portfolios during that time frame or your income is going to drop. That's correct. Because there's risks to doing that. Correct. If you had to withdraw more than just what you're living off from the interest because you don't know where bond prices are going to be at yes. the time you have you need that money that was unexpected. So if cost of your living expenses go up due to inflation or just you have unexpected events, now you're not able to pull from that money anymore. I'm, I'm almost thinking of it like your income's always then going to go down, right? Because of inflation long-term. Absolutely. So you're fine with 4%, but just know that your income's always slightly going to be going down every year. Correct. But is that conservative? To the eye, because your money's not going to be fluctuating up and down. It's a conservative investment approach, but it's not a conservative income approach. Mm. What would be a good example of a conservative income approach? I don't, there's, there's probably not a perfect income approach that's conservative because you have to take into consideration a lot of things. Annuity? No. Because, or the income rider? No, because then again, you're setting your income at a fixed amount and you're not factoring in for adjustments and increases. I guess a What about with an income rider though? I mean, an inflation writer. Yeah, it could, but then those are also contingent on the contracts that's writing the writer and the, the details of those writers are, you and I all know, <laughs> those are written by insurance companies and you're not getting a perfect cost of living adjustment. <laughs> of course, it sounds per, it sounds great when you first talk about it, but it's diving sleazy, in. you know, used car salesman. No, I think I got the answer. The conservative income approach is to never take any income until you're forced to take income by the IRS, which would be your required minimum distribution. Yeah, but that's not re always reality. No, it's it, not. It's not, but we said it was a conservative approach. I mean, that would be the most conservative thing you could do. I mean, the best type of fixed income is getting a pension, you know, from the state <laughs> with a cost of living adjustment that, yeah. you know, 
Because they're taking the risk. You're Correct. not. That's why it's the most conservative. Correct. Yeah, that's true. Some could say it's social security as well, but we know there's you know a lot of scrutiny in terms of like the longevity of that asset. I knew a guy who once said social security is the best annuity money can buy. Yep. I do too. I know that guy. Yeah. He works in this office. So, <laughs> so I think what you're saying is it's, this is such a simple rule in this podcast, but this is really more of an art. And uh, yeah. it, especially in those 60s and 70s before the required beginning date starts when you have to take money out. You know, if you're, if you, let's look at someone who's retiring before Social Security age, you know, before their FRA kicks in. So this would be someone who's retiring before 67 or 68, but they actually want to retire at like 62. You know, are you, are you turning on Social Security at 62 or are you withdrawing more from the portfolio? Very good question. Income? Very good question. That's a common question. We have a lot yeah. of clients that have that question. And there's not a one perfect answer to that. You, you have to solve that scenario by scenario. Yeah, you got to do that. You got to do planning, right? Yes. And that's a problem with all of these rules, though, because life's different for everybody and needs different for everybody. And then you have the unexpecteds, mm-hmm. which we see all the time in this office of clients needing fun- their funds because of something that they couldn't foresee. And that throws off that whole rule for this year. Correct. So essentially, if you are a person who's listening to this podcast and you don't want to take the time to put a plan in, you don't want to pay for a plan, you don't want to hire a professional, your financial plan is to work until 70 and then you collect Social Security because that's the last time that you could collect Social Security, right? Mm-hmm. And then you don't touch your retirement savings until age 73 when you have to start taking your retirement savings. And that's the most conservative retirement plan possible. And you work from basically 20 until 70. Without not even really talking about the investments. But yeah, for income planning, that would be the most conservative. But full disclosure, this is not financial advice. No, no that, <laughs> sounds awful. that sounds awful. You know, and and what you're saying by the requirement of distribution, so let's clarify that. So when you put your saving, when you're putting money into your 401k or into your IRA and you built that up to your retirement plan, there's a point at 73, 74, or now 75, depending on what year you're born, that you're forced to start taking out of your pre-taxed investments. What we're saying here is that you're not taking out of any of your other investments until the IRS forces you to begin taking out those distributions. And that's all that you take out. Now, if half of your money is in after-tax money and half of your money is in pre-tax money, you may be only withdrawing 2% of your money. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Scenario-based. But there is a point where the IRS does require you to take out of your retirement accounts. And that does come into factor when we're talking about the 4% rule. But one other big factor that we haven't talked about yet is taxes. Ooh, taxes. Because if you're taking out 4% of your money, let's not forget you're probably not getting 4% of your money unless your income is very low. That's a great point. Yep. Yeah, because you got to pay taxes on it. Correct. So if we use the same scenario that we talked about in the beginning, you have a million dollars in your portfolio. You take out 4%, you're getting 40000 You may only be getting 34000 or 32000 after all the taxes have been paid. Yeah, and so if you want 4% net, you're probably taking out at least 5.5% is what you're saying. Correct. And that's not what we're testing here as a successful withdrawal strategy. No, it's not. You're taking it higher than the guideline, higher percentage. So this sounds complex. So if you need 40,000, you probably need one, two, or one, three in your portfolio to net out the 40,000. Yeah, and when you say one, two, you mean 1,200,000, not 1 million. Correct. Yeah, that's a good point. Correct. So it's, it's not a perfect world. It is based on every person is individually based and everybody has different puzzle pieces that make up their picture. And I think the only way 
to create a withdrawal strategy that works for somebody is to individualize it and do it with them directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And continue to update it, like you said. You know, because anyone who's not creating a plan or not reviewing this, do they even know where they fall on that percentage withdrawal spectrum? Like, you know, how many people we even meet and you're like, how much are you taking out of your portfolios? And they don't even know that percentage. Right. Well, they don't even know what the total asset total is because they're coming to us to help organize and put that all together. Uh, and I'm, I'm in this camp as well. So I'm just going to come out and say it before. But most people don't even know how much they make on a monthly basis. They're like, well, you ask them like, well, how much is your net check? Like what goes into your checking account? Right. And they're like, oh, I don't know. Maybe it's like, you know, 4,000. Maybe it's, Maybe it's 3000 Well, what about your wife? I, I don't know what goes in for her. Yeah, and then they're scrolling their phone, logging into their bank to figure out what that net check is. Yeah, and that's like the most important number you can get. I think the other thing about the 4% rule that brings up another challenge is we talked about market conditions and we talked about market movement. But I think the other area about that is what when you're in a down market or potentially in an up market, not just your average market, what are you selling off to get the 4%? Because last year when the market, or 2022, when the market was down, we were very specific about what portfolio assets, what shares we were selling to get the 4% for people's income out or whatever income they needed. Because you can't just be loosely selling across the board all the shares. If market's down, are you selling bonds? Are you selling stock? If stocks and bonds are down like it was in 2022, how are you picking what you're selling? You have to look at the portfolio and you know what you're trying to do is keep a certain percentage of stocks and bonds so you're you're trying to navigate that to make sure that you keep that percentage of stocks right and the percentage of bonds right so for every client it might be different the idea though is you want to keep the balance exactly so you and that's why the whole rule works is because you are keeping that balance but traditionally it would be fixed income yeah you know i think that you know over the last few years there have been some kind of unique situations like stocks and bonds both being down in 2022 but generally you're probably taking from fixed income first there's there's a lot of detail to figuring out how you're going to sell or figure out what those allocations are right like you don't know exactly if you're 62 percent stock and 35 percent bonds because you have some money in cash and then you're navigating on what to sell off and what to change i mean there's there's so much that goes into that there's another layer to that also just behavior, right? Meaning, or, you know, you like this stock or you like this mutual fund and you don't want to sell it. Like there's just so many layers to making that decision right? than just which is even doing good or bad. Yeah. And another complexity we had too is, is people that have long-term gains in their portfolio and that you may have no other option but to sell those. And now you're paying capital gains tax. And then again, now you're potentially selling off more than what you need because you have to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a tough one too. I mean, and that's where you might want to start those capital gains before you start pulling out of your IRA to get those down first. That's what the research says. Anyways, kind of wrapping up thoughts for me, you know, basic rule, but a complex topic. What about you, Brian? Any parting thoughts? I, I very much like the rule. I love the rule as a basic conversation starter when we're thinking about our retirement plan. It's a basic guideline to go off of it gives you somewhere to start when thinking about your withdrawals, but there go there is so much more that goes into it that you can't say that that's concrete, but it is a great starter for sure. 
I agree with that. I think that I endorse the rule. Absolutely. As a starting point, good benchmark. But I think real retirement planning is more dynamic than that. But uh, again, a great way to start. Perfect. Let's jump in. RPA recommends. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. I don't have a product to recommend. What I am recommending, though, is we are at the beginning of the year. I think in in our modern generation that we're in today, and I guess anytime you're in the generation you're in, it's more modern. Subscriptions are all over. And a lot of us can have subscriptions that we're not using. What I'm doing now is going back through my budget and looking at what subscriptions I have that I'm not using. I don't need eight TV subscriptions. And I'm getting rid of things that I don't need or don't use because I can always go start them again if I want them in the future. But monthly auto transactions add up very, very quickly. I'd recommend everybody going through their bank statements for two months, credit card and both their their checking or savings statements that they have expenses coming out of and make sure that the any autos that they have coming out that they're using. Because if you don't need them. Your iPhone has an app. If you search subscriptions, you could see what you've paid through through iPhone. Yeah. And what I also had done, because I had that, I I was able to bundle some of them that my kids used. And it actually saved me money every month because it bundled like TV and some of their other apps that they were using that they need for school. So it was just another way to save money. Just team up with a buddy. Yeah. Share subs- subscriptions all over the place. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people do that. Josh, do you have a recommendation? You want me to go first? I I do. I didn't actually think of a, a great one today. So apologize for that. But it's something that we just got for one for the office too, but I got at home that I'm using every time. You guys might have already recommended this, but it's a um, power washer. Yes. So I put mine together, got one for Christmas and I love mine. It is so useful around the house. Like even the rain happened and we had a bunch of like those little dried worms on our driveway. Bang. I got one right off. Uh, But really good. If you are a homeowner or just like your stuff cleaned, especially around the house, front, backyard, my power washer is definitely recommended. Do you have the brand of the one we bought for the office? I don't, uh, but we could probably add it to the show notes. But uh, we got one for the office too, so we can make sure this place is looking real nice. All right, for my recommend, this is kind of more me rambling. It's not really a recommend. Oscar season going on right now, Josh. I know you're a movie guy. Watched Killers of Flower Moon on Apple. That was a, that was a long you think? one. It took me like four days to watch that thing. It took us two days. Yeah, th- three and a half hours. This isn't a year for movies. Like, if you like movies, this wasn't the year for it. Yeah, I haven't been really impressed with any of the ones. I mean, Killers of a Flower Moon, were, did you like it? It was all right. I, like, it, it wasn't the best Leo experience. And Scorsese experience either. Yeah. I watched Barbie. Not to go off your, your recommends. Well, but. Barbie's probably the best one I've seen. At least you leave the Barbie movie kind of feeling happy. You like the song, I'm Just Ken? Yeah, who, who doesn't? <laughs> yeah, I watched it. It was actually pretty good. Entertaining. At least it was entertaining. It, it was entertaining, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I watched Maestro. I fell asleep. I don't know if you've watched that one, the Bradley Cooper flick. No, I'm not going to attempt that one. That, that one was, for me. it's kind of a snoozer. So yeah, I, I'm almost agreeing with you. There's not. So anyone else, any other movies that you're recommending from the Oscar list? No, just wanted to give my take more than recommend anything. It's not the year, huh? Yeah, not the year. So the power wash we bought was a Powrite, P-O-W-R-Y-T-E. Amazon, right? Yep, on Amazon. It was $160 and uh, 
I'm excited to get it started out here. I know. And even for car washes. Yep. So that's a good tool. Have you watched any of the Oscar films? No. I don't even think I've watched a movie in like a year or two. So he, he's not a movie guy. I'm he doesn't movie. like cinematic adventures. I just can't sit there that long. Did like, you watch the new? Did you watch Top Gun? The new Top Gun last no. year. All right, let's end the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for joining us on the Retirement Plan Playbook. I'm Matt. I'm Brent. Josh. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Retirement Plan Playbook. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to stay updated please click the subscribe button for notifications on new episodes. For personalized financial guidance or to connect with our team, you're welcome to call us at 909-296-7977 or visit www.evermont.com for a complimentary consultation. Your journey towards a successful retirement plan continues and we are here to help every step of the way. Until next time, keep building your future. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Evermont Wealth. The content has been made available for information and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.